Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. You've got me, uh, Brett Mitchell, today. And I'm also joined by Professor Daryl Williams. Uh, Professor Williams is the Director of the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Management at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Welcome, Daryl, and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Brett. Uh, pleasure to be here today. Now, we are going to have a chat about an article that you've um, had accepted into infection, disease and health. And the article is called Respiratory Protection Preparedness in Critical Care Healthcare Workers. And it was an observational audit of facial hair at your hospital. So I guess the, the first question, I guess, of interest would be, how did you get, before you even get to the article, how did you get into the the sort of um, the interest of, of respiratory protection? Where, what was the driver for yourself? Well, core business for Anistis is uh, to be worried about uh, airway management and uh, we love our toys. So uh, <laughs> we play quite a bit with uh, various uh, masks and, you know, we played with uh, respirators or protective masks over a, a period, mainly when uh, we'd been exposed to plumes in the operating suite. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so viral plumes uh, related to ear, nose and throat surgery, uh, but also when we were doing bronchoscopies uh, with some of our respiratory physicians uh, in, in patients that may have had tuberculosis, yeah. uh, for, for yeah. instance. Now, um, I sort of reflect on this because I worked on infectious disease ward for a number of years and, and cared for lots of people with MDR and XDRTB. And, you know, we, we were never fit tested uh, for respiratory equipment at that time using uh, N95s. Um, and I guess going back in time a little bit before pre-COVID, was it was a similar thing for yourself and your discipline in terms of, you know, that example you used about uh, perhaps performing bronchoscopy on someone who had suspected or confirmed pulmonary TB? How aware were you as a profession at the time about these types of things? Were, were you acutely aware of it or was it something that's developed in more recent times? Yeah, well, everyone got acutely aware uh, with the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. There's no doubt about that. No, not really. Um you know, the, the quintessential disposable respirator for, for many years uh, at the Royal Melbourne Hospital where I work is a, is a duckbill uh, style. Yeah. And, you know, I could barely place it on my face. You know, there was virtually mm. no education uh, and training. Uh, all I knew was that it was incredibly tight-fitting and difficult to breathe through, um, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, my test at that time, which was my user seal check, was just to see whether there was any collapsibility um, of the respirator. And, and that's a, about as much as I knew uh, and that it was hopefully providing some respiratory protection from airborne hazards. Yes. Actually, similar for myself. Uh, after, um, in more recent times, I, got, I was fit tested a few years ago, but uh, it sort of dawned on me. I hope I was always wearing that duckbill style mask and uh, uh, it was the first one I got fit tested on. Luckily, I passed. I mean, no, not necessarily representative of what was happening retrospectively with my facial fit, but... Um, uh, I sort of hoped I would because I thought all those years of wearing it and didn't didn't have didn't have a fit test. So that sort of leads us on to this piece of work that um, we'll talk about today. And specifically, you are interested in looking at at facial hair in people who were fit tested um, and who were potentially needing to or were wearing uh, respirators. So perhaps just take us through that that journey to why this became an issue for yourself and your hospital. Yeah, well, I was um, I was lucky enough to be involved with implementation of our you know full respiratory uh, protection program, and of course, what we found was that um, 
a lot of males had uh, designer beards and designer <laughs> stubble. Uh, and, and we know in the community at the moment, you know, about 40 or 50 percent of, of males actually have facial hair at this point in time. So mm. it's incredibly popular. And a, a lot of males uh, do have difficulty, you know, with with manual shaving and, and doing that on, on a daily basis. And also, you know, their, their whole, uh, you know, belief system may have changed over time and some of their idea of their identity and masculinity is related to, to facial hair. And of course, then there's a, a smaller subgroup for religious and cultural uh, uh, reasons or for genuine skin conditions and medical conditions who mm. just cannot shave. And, and so, um, you know, the, we went through a journey of um, cajoling people along uh, to try and shave, uh, explain the importance um, of uh, the fact that respirators that are tight-fitting uh, do leak um, with facial hair. And, and there is very good evidence uh, around that. And that's because the, the sort of shaft of a facial hair is about 100 uh, microns in diameter. And the biohazards that we are looking at, whether they be, you know, bacteria or viruses, you know, are, are either a few mo micron to sub-micron. Uh, so they can easily slip past uh, facial hairs. And, and there's very good evidence uh, that respirators don't work as well with uh, facial hair over about one or two millimetres in length. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on that topic of, of sort of, current trends and, and male facial hair you, you're you know you're absolutely right i think you, you have only got to walk down the street or go to your local bar to see that sort of look and i think your point is well made in the paper in the discussion component too that do males do find that shaving with a clean razor with a, with a razor itself can be quite irritating for the skin after a period of time yeah. um I, I generally didn't like don't like shaving every every day for that for exactly that reason and bought an electric shaver but it doesn't particularly during covid but it doesn't give you that um that really clean cut shave that uh that that's probably required as you just alluded to so in in this audit that you did this cross-sectional audit this was on a group of males in various settings. I'll let you explain it. But they had already undertaken a respiratory program. They'd already been fit tested. Um, so we knew that they, you knew they'd passed their fit test. Um, so what were you interested in finding out? Well, I, I guess we were looking, um, we were, we were sort of almost in between lockdowns. In fact, <laughs> poor old Victoria, <laughs> we we're entering lockdown, uh, number six, I think. So, um, we entered lockdown, uh, six. At the start of August in uh, 2021, and, and this was about two weeks after that that lockdown, uh, and the prevalence of COVID was increasing, mm -hmm. and um, we sort of knew within the hospital that we would have hot, you know, zones uh, where respiratory protection was going to be required, and mm -hmm. um, you know, my my informal observations walking around the hospital was that there seemed to be more hairy people than usual and uh, <laughs> and um, we'd had a, uh, a quality assurance uh, human research and ethics application in for implementation of the respiratory protection pr program and a core part of that was to make sure people were using their respirators appropriately on an ongoing yeah. basis not just to do quantitative fit testing so i initiated that uh, audit and um <laughs> And, uh, you know, I started in the emergency department, which was a hot zone, but it only been a hot zone for about 24 hours. And, okay. and I think this is the importance of being prepared uh, to use your respirator at short notice. You really mm. do need to be 
clean shaven. So I observed, uh, you know, about 30 emergency department staff in that hot zone and and 40% of people sort of had non-compliant facial hair. So, Mm. you know, that varied between uh, stubble, you know, greater than a millimetre up to, you know, bearded people uh, Mm. greater than five millimetres and then sort of long beards uh, up to 15 millimetres. And then I sort of replicated that audit uh, process in the operating suite and in intensive care and observed about another 80 uh, staff and almost 50% of people there had non-compliant beards. Now, at that time, they weren't required to wear a, a respirator, but uh, they were certainly involved in a lot of aerosol-generating uh, procedures and intermittently were dealing with COVID and SCOVID uh, patients. So. They were sort of ill-prepared, you know, to be ready at short notice to wear their respirator. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, isn't it? And and for the listeners, um, Victoria, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, Daryl, um, there's a, a sort of a, an amber, a traffic light system for trying to give an indication of the level of community transmission of, of COVID. And at this point in time, it was on red. It was at the highest level. That, that's right. So it's, uh, red is the sort of second highest level. But we were certainly in an active uh, state mm. and, and people were supposed to be prepared uh, mm. at knowing that the COVID prevalence in the community was increasing. Um, it was moderate to high and uh, we were one of the streaming hospitals for Victoria. So we were receiving a lot more of the COVID positive patients uh, to our facility as well. So we were sort of over-representative in terms of the COVID numbers within the hospital at that time. And uh, we've, we've subsequently gone into, you know, the black peak mode uh, <laughs> with our new uh, variant and actually stayed in that mode uh, almost continuously now for the, the last six months. Yeah. So just in terms of like the, I guess, the communication and messaging, um, thinking about those mm, traffic light systems and the communication to staff, is that is it linked? So is there is there a reasonable communication that says, okay, it's is red, this is what this means at the current space or place in time? Um, I guess I guess my, my question is, yeah, do we need to do more around that communication for staff? You need to be more prepared given um, given the current circumstance, or do you think it's a a psychological behavioural thing that we need to to really start to to address through an education program? Yeah, I think. Um yeah, it has to be a multifaceted um, approach. You know, people are incredibly fatigued during mm-hmm. the COVID pandemic. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are still psychologically distressed. You know, respirators weren't readily available initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, some hospitals that received a lot of COVID patients had a lot of both staff and uh, patient infections. Um, and, and, you know, they have been, you know, psychologically a little overwhelmed you know, by the COVID pandemic and then repeated lockdowns uh, make it difficult. Mm. And then there's a sort of variance between what's going on in a a hospital or an aged care facility where there's vulnerable people and then what's going on in the community where the community controls may be released. So uh, people see uh, unshaved people without masks, Mm. having a nice time uh, in nightclubs (laughs) or out at restaurants. Uh, and then the expectation is that they're supposed to be clean shaven then uh, at work wearing a respirator for most of the day. And, and I think that's in- incredibly difficult. You know, people are tired. They, you know, they wanted to be in the, the flow of work and the flow of life. And, it, and, and that contrast, I think, is quite 
quite tricky for them. But there, yeah. look, there are a few things I think that can be done. It's 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 important that if people have genuine reasons why they can't uh, shave, that they can make an attestation. And, and you know, there there are other techniques which are being looked looked into for people that genuinely cannot shave. And I think mm. that's um, important. The use of hooded, uh, powered air. Uh, respirators and uh, some other techniques where people may be uh, able to use an elastic band over over respirator, but more sort of mm. research is being done in that space. But more generally, you know, I think assisting people to do the right thing, so gently encouraging them and and, and them understanding the importance of being uh, clean shaven. Uh, you know, to have. Uh, pop-up areas where people uh, can can shave. Mm. You know, we know that if you uh, place uh, water and some soap on a beard and that's on for, um, or even light stubble for about two to three minutes, mm. uh, that does uh, decrease the, the stiffness of the, the hair shaft by about 30 to 50% and it makes it much easier then to shave and you're mm. much less likely to cause any mechanical deformation of the the follicle and then get irritation so mm. you know knowing that is quite important sometimes you just need to slow down and take your time, take your time. And, yeah and of course uh, shavers uh, mechanical shavers which cut uh, do stretch the follicle and cause some ir irritation uh, whereas uh, if you've got an electric shaver it has a sort of more scissor action uh, mm. and cuts the shaft and and causes less irritation so there's about a 50 percent reduction in in irritation with an electric shaver as, as opposed to a, a manual shaver so knowing some of these things i think can allow people to do the right thing uh, on a recurrent basis yeah that, that's a really good point actually it's it's uh, and, and i think you know this area along with many areas i mean i've been working in, in sort of infectious disease infectious control for some time and i've always called out the fact that we have a paucity of 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 good um investment in research and and understanding about some of these things and this is a classic example and, and we, were, we were caught short and uh, and we're still learning a lot about all these types of things um and lots more that we do need to do in this space to, to be able to make things work better for people and, and, and protect uh, healthcare workers doing their job we haven't touched, of course, on the legal obligations, and that does vary across the world. But certainly in Australia, there are quite clear workplace health and safety um, legislation, varies somewhat between jurisdictions. But there are requirements, of course, for, for employers to take reasonable steps to protect their employees too. So um, I guess all those things need to be thrown in the mix uh, as well, don't they? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So mm. both the employer and the employee has responsibilities to mm. be doing the, you know, the right things as far as practicable. Yep. Now, just um, out of interest, with these results, did it and the audit, did you feed that back to staff and, and if or management? And if so, how was that received? And did it change anything? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, you know it's still very difficult to uh, you know change behaviours. Certainly, at the time of quantitative uh, fit testing, we do insist on people being uh, clean shaven, so we're mm. we're fairly adamant about that. And that's also a really good time to um, impart information. Um, and and sometimes we will demonstrate uh, a leak, uh, but uh, the international requirements are that you know quantitative fit testing. 
uh, or qualitative fit testing needs to be done uh, clean mm. shaven so there's no hair follicles uh, mm. between the respirator interface and, and the skin. But yes, no, we've certainly fed that back to all the uh, critical care areas and uh, certainly people were more clean shaven for a couple of weeks uh, <laughs> after that time uh, period. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to sustain the change. And as I said, you know, we're well out of lockdowns now here in Victoria and, um, and the community behaviour is quite different to the hospital-based behaviour. And so mm-hmm. that, that, that brings its own, own challenges because, uh, you know, when people are off uh, for a few days, they're, they're not clean shaven. And as I said, they're fully unmasked and enjoying themselves out in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they uh, sort of um, have to be uh, ready to perform, uh, you know, back at the coalface. Yeah. I'll just you know, divert just for a second just to touch on something you mentioned, but uh, I won't name the organisation that I was involved with, but um, some for some reason um, they decided to fit test some people who weren't clean shaven um, and had beards. In fact, and passed uh, the the quantitative fit test. So then there was an argument of saying, "Well, look, we passed this uh, fit fit test, and I wasn't clean shaven. Therefore, I um, I'm quite I think I'm in my rights to to not remain clean shaven." Um, and of course, you know, we explained that that's not the process of doing that uh, actual procedure. But did you come across that sort of um, argument or have that kind of challenge in your organisation? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> daily, daily. Uh, you know, I, you can see it from both points of view, and and it sort of depends on the purpose of the respirator. I mean, much of the use of uh, respirators at the moment in hospitals is uh, less so for respiratory protection and more for source control. Um, mm. So we are trying. We we know there'll be incidental patients coming in all the time with high community prevalence of COVID Mm. and what we're trying to do is prevent outbreaks. Uh, So we're using respirators both on staff who may be incidentally infected as source control and similarly on patients as well, you know, uh, prior to knowing PCR result, Mm. the symptomatic, etc. So a lot of it is source control and, and, you know, any uh, respirator tight fitting on any face uh, is better than a surgical mask or no mask. Mm. And um, and so, you know, sometimes if you're using things for source control, it just may be appropriate to put that over a beard mm. on either a, a patient, uh, a visitor, or a staff member because it provides superior source control. But it yeah. doesn't provide adequacy of respiratory protection and it doesn't do it reliably and, and that's the important thing there's a um, th- there is very good evidence that if you repeat quantitative fit testing uh, you will get much more variance in the results in bearded people mm. uh, and that's because the the ceiling interface is changing depending on how the beard is manipulated the the, the level of the beard um, you know the the length of the beard, um, you know, the, it starts uh, to be uh, quite rigid and firm at, at certain levels. And if it's designed in a certain way, it sort of pokes out a little bit more compared to a long beard that sometimes sit flat on the mm. face and then resembles more the contour of the face. So there are a variety of things about why there's much more uh, user variability with repeat fit testing. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we, we, we focus on respiration, absolutely critical for as part of that respiratory pro- protection program. 
Um, but um, it would be remiss of us to say that it's one element and we certainly would like to see things, structural engineering and other process changes that are put in place to improve ventilation, air quality and all the other things that can go alongside respirators to make uh, to make it safer for both uh, healthcare workers and patients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. And obviously, everyone's doing their ventilation uh, assessments in the hospital <laughs> and uh, finding wards and, and procedural zones uh, where the uh, clearance time is, is suboptimal, and, and right. then uh, supplementing those, you know, with uh, large HEPA filters or you know, re-engineering mm. uh, the ventilation systems. Mm. Um, just before we wrap up, um, I wonder what your thoughts are moving forward in in, in terms of. You know, we're coming into an influenza season now. So, um, you know, if you were to, to care for a patient with suspected influenza or confirmed influenza now, um, are you, are you hoping that what's happened with COVID uh, has, has somewhat changed our approach to other respiratory pathogens as well? Um, such as, such as influenza? Yes, well, there's a, there's a lot of people much smarter than me that have looked at aerosol spread, uh, you know, various uh, biohazards, and also just the aerosolization of, of particles that we thought would be droplets and readily fall mm. to the ground, and they can be aerosolized for a long period of time. Mm. Uh, so I think the whole view in terms, you know, of contact and then droplet mm. and then airborne spread uh, has changed a lot, and people see certainly the droplet and airborne spread on a continuum mm. and um, that it is important both to control the source of that spread uh, and then protect people um, from both droplets and air airborne spread. And the best way to do that is with a, a tight-fitting respirator. There's no mm. doubt about it. So mm. I think um, people will be wearing respirators, you know, in hospitals almost continuously until we get to the other side of, of winter and we... Mm. We know what uh, variants of concern have evolved uh, with COVID and we've got through our inf influenza uh, peak over winter and uh, things are looking pretty grim, as I understand, in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. So um, I expect with uh, international travel open, uh, we yes. can expect a, a pretty large peak for influenza this season. Yeah. And uh, for those listeners, we've, we've touched on this topic and, and uh, with Holly Seal recently, uh, talking about vaccine hesitancy and what impact that might have with the upcoming influenza season as well and, and people's, uh, people's, uh, some people's hesitancy perhaps to get influenza vaccines. All these things might, might, um, play a part in that, of course, as well. Um, look, Daryl, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you, you coming on and sharing this, uh, this piece of work with us and, and thanks for, um, for doing it. I mean, you know, it's a simple, um, piece of work in terms of the, the paper itself but i think it's really important that these types of things are communicated and published and sharing these experiences because without these types of things being documented it makes it harder for someone in another hospital to have the same debate and argument and evidence that they need to provide to their management so thanks very much for for sharing this yeah thanks thanks very much brett yeah look i was a bit concerned about um you know, watching all my colleagues in the critical care areas and their response <laughs> to to the paper, but uh, they've been uh, very good and very supportive about it. So, yeah, no, thanks very much for your time today. Really appreciate it, Brett. Thanks very much, Daryl. And thanks to all our listeners for joining in. And um, until next time, it's bye from me.